We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. It's a, a free way to play basketball. You know, I, I've told our guys as hard as they work on their offensive games, I know they're going to try to make the right plays. So you either shoot it, pass it, or drive it. Just don't hold the ball. That's And, and it has to happen in 0.5 seconds. And so we'll play faster uh, because of that. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. I actually finally got to watch basketball, and we get to finally talk about basketball. My name is Mike Vigil, the host of this podcast, and of course, Sam Cooper's with me. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. Uh, last night, I didn't get to watch the game live, so I, I sort of just watched a replay of it, but that was fun. Let's yeah. do that. Let's do that more often. I, I, I didn't even know what I was watching, honestly. <laughs> I'm not used to seeing shooting at all yeah and you know kind of seeing the vision of the 0.5 offense as well uh, what the idea around that offense is and uh, just moving the ball a lot there was lots of passes lots of assists uh running the ball in transition if the ball if there was sort of a live ball turnover it was constant running but even the set plays were kind of interesting uh and all of that without deandre and devin booker and ricky rubio <laughs> yeah i mean that uh who was it it's Fuck, I'm already blanking on his name. Kevin uh, Calabro, that's his name, the TV play-by-play commentator for the Blazers, said something in the late third quarter of this game where he was like, for a team playing without three of its starters and Rubio, Booker, and Aiton, Phoenix is playing very disciplined on offense. You know, I'm paraphrasing there, but he said something roughly similar to that. And I was like, wow, you know what? You're really right. Like, this is a team 
with a lot of discipline in its playmaking right now. And it's something we sort of alluded to over the offseason with the amount of playmakers that they added. Uh, But it's just really good to see that start to translate on the court, even though it's just preseason. Yeah, and, and, you know, we've seen three preseason games to this point. Minnesota, Sacramento, and now this Portland game. And this Portland game was the most disciplined that they looked. The, The first two games, as you expect were sloppy, basically. They, they looked kind of sloppy. They weren't really prepared. There was a lot of uh, getting to know each other, getting used to each other. And I think coming into this game, I'll be honest, I expected more of that, especially without Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, and, and Ricky Rubio. That's two of our better passers out of the lineup, as, as far as I thought, at least. <laughs> two of our better passers out of the lineup. I expected it to look kind of clunky. I expected it to look like guys who haven't really played with each other. And we really got none of that. It was lots of shooting, uh, lots of ball movement, lots of uh, quick decision making. I do have to ask you, actually, thinking about that point five offense, we haven't really talked about it, that point five offense uh, concept, and that is just making quick decisions as soon as you touch the ball. Which one of the Suns players do you think will have the most trouble with that? Who, who do you think will struggle the most? Kelly, probably. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's Kelly. So I, I wrote a very quick column for Brightside about point five, uh, as the as the Suns are calling it um, this week, and it's sort of like it doesn't inherently mean too much to me that phrase, uh, but mm-hmm. mostly I just think the Suns have boosted their personnel and they have smarter players. Like I think Igor tried to run similar sets. I think Earl Watson even tried to run similar sets as we're seeing with Monty right now. Maybe not to the extent of the three-point shooting uh, we saw last night because we really haven't seen the Suns take 45 threes in a game all too much uh, in the past five years. I- I'm not sure we've ever seen that. I'd have to bring up the uh, stats. Never, actually. Yeah, well, I know, it's never happened. I know they've yeah. never made that many, but have they ever taken that many? No. no. I a- actually looked that up as so, well. Yeah. So first of all, like, just congrats to Monty on that because like, he said he wanted them to play faster. He said he wanted them to shoot more threes and uh, he put his money where his mouth is. And, you know, we definitely saw that last night. But with point five, uh, I just I think the Suns players are looking much smarter that having veterans helps. Uh, if there's anyone who's going to struggle with the quick decisions, though, it's Kelly. And that's not quick decisions in terms of, uh, you know, I think he can be quick in his decision making to drive and attack sometimes when he shouldn't. And I don't want to dwindle too much on the Sacramento performance, but that's kind of what we saw there with an 0 for 9 game. He followed it up with a very good game last night in Portland. Uh, but yeah, he's he's going to be the one probably if I had to choose someone who struggles the most. That makes sense. I, I actually think that Kelly is capable of making very quick decisions. I'm just worried about that decision being the same thing every time. Yeah, so, so um, <laughs> here's the thing. Like, I, I want to give him credit. I was very impressed last night with Kelly, uh, particularly on some possessions, in a game where Rubio and Booker were both out. Uh, And I had mentioned the possibility of this happening a few weeks ago, and then I actually started to see it last night. There were some plays where Kelly took the ball straight off a defensive rebound and started the break by himself. There was a play in the first quarter where he stepped right into a pull-up three and nailed it, which frightened me a a little bit when like, I saw it go up, but then it went in, so you can't really complain with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the point is, he's not the only one who's doing uh, doing that. Sharich did it uh, on mm-hmm. some plays as well. There was a play where Sharich got a rebound, went all the way down the court by himself with a, a little bit of a loose dribble, but good enough for a 6'10 player, posted yeah. up a smaller uh, defender and made the layup. And his post-up possessions haven't looked great in preseason, but that one looked pretty good. So the point is yeah. Monty is entrusting basically everyone on this roster to have some 
kind of higher usage playmaking role. I mean, we saw Frank Kaminsky with eight assists and one turnover yeah. last night. That was huge. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I, I just think it goes way beyond Rubio's a good playmaker, uh, Booker's a good playmaker, but basically everyone on this team is going to have some involved role in the offense, and, and that's refreshing to see. Yeah, and I think they were benefiting from surprising taking the portland trailblazers a little off guard there they <laughs> catching them off guard they they didn't expect the suns to look that disciplined they didn't expect them to make that many shots and you know it's not something that i think that we can really predict that that will happen often going <laughs> forward it was the most three pointers the suns have ever yeah. made in a game preseason postseason or regular season regardless it's still a remarkable feat it's something that we can't really expect to ever happen again but I do wonder how much of that can happen in the season just catching teams off guard if they are disciplined and I think it's an interesting thing where uh, with Devin Booker DeAndre Ayton and Ricky Rubio on the sidelines they got to kind of see that happen and see how that sort of discipline can catch teams off guard that's kind of the goal right Monty Williams as we've talked about it came from the Spurs essentially that's where he started his coaching and uh, you just kind of expect that that's what he wants. I mean, even the players that were brought in, you can kind of see the vision of those players working in this game more than anything else. And I think what the most fascinating thing about this game is, uh, is that besides Kelly Oubre and Mikhail Bridges, this was basically all new players for us. We were, mm-hmm. we were watching an entirely new team uh, on the court. And uh, so we got to see exactly what that's going to look like. And, and more than anything else, that's what the James Jones vision is, right? What we saw last night is kind of what that is. So it what a, did you think of that? No, it 100% is. The James Jones vision is bringing guys who can shoot, who are high IQ basketball players. They don't have to be the most athletic guys on the court, but that doesn't mean they're not uh, that they're incapable of pushing the pace. And that's exactly what we saw last night. Now, I think there's going to be ups and downs. Uh, you know, the Suns shot 23% as a team from deep through those first two games. Then they shot 53% last night. Obviously, the average is going to fall somewhere in the middle. They're probably going to even out to around 35, 36, maybe, hopefully, percent uh, as a team, I would think, throughout the season. So had they made fewer threes last night, you got to find other ways to struggle and win that game. But they won the game by 16 points. So obviously, they were uh, doing other things right as well. Uh, and the playmaking is going to be the other thing that kind of evens out. Like even with the Suns, uh, I'm looking at the box score right now. They had 29 assists to 18 turnovers. That's great. Even with that performance last night, uh, if you tally up their assists and turnovers so far in preseason, they still have a ratio of less than one as a team. Obviously you (laughs) want to see that you want to see it go up, but I think a lot of that can be attributed to new guys coming in, playing together. Uh, And again, last night was just really the, the first super positive indication that we got that these guys can mesh well uh, and that James Jones vision might work. Yeah. And I I think that Sacramento game was kind of a killer as far as turnovers go. (laughs) There's a lot of turnovers in that game, but with preseason, because it's the first time we get to see these teams perform and these new players play with that comes overreactions. So what I did is I scoured the internet and that is Facebook, of course, (laughs) Twitter, YouTube, uh, Reddit, anywhere that Suns fans are talking, and I tried to distill the biggest overreactions, uh, and I wanted to go through those a little bit with you, because I think even though a lot of these are insane, there is, they come from somewhere. <laughs> you know, watching these games, they come from somewhere. Um, so let's talk about the first one. I want to go over the first one. Let's see, which one do I want to go over? Let's talk about shooting first. So 
there were two takes, I think, after the Sacramento game. <laughs> the Suns are the worst shooting team in the NBA. <laughs> and then after the Portland game, the Suns are the best shooting team of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. So back to back, we got to see that. And I think actually you made an interesting point on Twitter after the Sacramento game. Basically said, this is not going to happen often. Only six threes were made. Lots of them were taken nowhere near 45. I think it was like 20 something were taken in the Sacramento game. Understandably, if you're just missing everything, but shooters got to shoot. You got to keep shooting essentially. And then of course they come back in Portland and have what could be a historic game or what would have been a historic game had it been in the regular season. Obviously, this is a level of shooting that cannot be sustained. I don't think that it's a coincidence that it came without Ricky Rubio on the floor. I hate to say that, but Ricky Rubio has not been very good at shooting so far uh, in the preseason. But what do do you think about the shooters? There's clearly more shooters on the team, at least, right? There's clearly more shooters on the team. I don't think the Suns are going to be the greatest shooting team of all time, unless Cam Johnson (laughs) is a 50% three-point shooter chucking up 10 of them a game, which who knows, but... Yeah, <laughs> he, might, he might be. But uh, no, I think they'll fall somewhere in the middle. It's just refreshing. And I'm glad you brought up Ricky Rubio because, you know, this means that if you want to have a sharp shooting lineup where you just stack it with five three point specialists, that means having Rubio off the floor. It means having DeAndre Ayton off the floor, at least until we see him start to take those threes consistently and make them consistently. Uh, and, and it probably means taking Kelly Oubre usually off the floor as well, although he shot well last night. But like at the end of the first quarter in last night's game against Portland, they were running a lineup of Ty Jerome, Tyler Johnson, Cam Johnson, Dario Saric, and uh, Frank Kaminsky. Yes. And then at one point, a couple minutes later, either at the end of the first or maybe even to start the second as well, I think Saric uh, subbed out for Bain. So you switch Kaminsky over to the four, which he can play as well to an extent, uh, Mm. and had Baines at the five. But those six players right there... Uh, made for two great lineups, both of which had uh, incredible gravity, incredible spacing all around. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's just obvious. The shooting has improved. You can tell. Uh, and I don't worry about those first two games whatsoever. I don't think the Suns are going to be one of the elite three-point shooting teams, though. Uh, but I think they'll be basically average, maybe even the, a little bit above. I found myself thinking when that, that first lineup that you talked about was on the court, there's five shooters on the court right now. And yeah. it, if you bang all three of the last three teams that we had for the Suns together, you could barely shake out five shooters from all three of those teams. So at some point, there was five shooters on the court. And I thought, first I thought, wow, it's bizarre that I'm watching five shooters play for the Phoenix Suns. But the other thought I had was, boy, I'd like to see Devin Booker in this lineup. <laughs> you know, surrounded by shooters like that. Uh, taking screens from guys who can spot up after that and really attacking. It makes it very difficult to help on Devin Booker's attacks if all four other guys can shoot. So yeah. I found myself thinking that a little bit. And, and, you know, it complicates going forward because that starting lineup, as we envision it, can't really do that. But, you know, and I know it's going to be a conversation that we have a lot is is who does Rubio play with and who does Booker play with? Well, yeah. But I think there's enough guys on this team that you can put together, and especially if Kelly Oubre, because Kelly Oubre supposedly put a lot of work into that shot. And he shot some interesting ones last night. There was... Two particular that I wanted to talk about. The one that you talked about where he caught it, brought it down. That was actually around a Bane's screen as well, which I thought was really impressive. A pull-up three in transition around a quick quick screen. Very quick decision-making. Maybe more than half a second, but <laughs> very quick decision-making. And then another one that was a deep three, which he did not shoot a lot of deep threes uh, last season. This was in the second half. And those are two kind of impressive things. And it's just something to watch going forward. He was a guy who... Uh, 
purposely worked on his jump shot in the offseason. And if it is improved, it has a massive impact on this team if his jump shot uh, is improved. So I think there's a way that you could build a lineup with Devin Booker uh, that that is a lot of shooters around him. Uh, it just depends on, on what, what they end up doing and how they end up uh, stacking these lineups. Yeah, for sure. And And to talk about if you buy into the idea of maybe we should stagger Rubio and Booker, uh, and we're going to be discussing who plays with Rubio versus who plays with Booker, having Booker surrounded by four shooters and, and that level of spacing around him makes a ton of sense. And equally, having Aiton be the guy who's paired with Rubio. Now, this doesn't mean you want to take all of Aiton's minutes and put them all with Ricky Rubio and never have him play with Devin Booker. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. We still project these guys as the starting lineup. When you're trying to maximize what everyone is good at, Having Booker with four shooters is easily going to raise Booker's ceiling as an offensive player. It's going to raise his three-point shooting percentages as well. Whereas having Aiton be the guy who's frequently paired with Rubio, you're taking the Suns' best pick-and-roll playmaker and pairing them with their best pick-and-roll finisher. I mean, I think it just makes a lot of logical sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's just going to be interesting going forward to see uh, what they end up doing. And I think that actually leads nicely into the next one here. This is the... Next overreaction, it is, Monty Williams has changed, man. (laughs) Monty Williams has changed. He's been telling us that he's different. He's been telling us that he's changed. He even made a joke about how people would laugh at some of the things that he's been telling the team. People from his past would laugh at it. And I think it's true. I mean, the best way to illustrate it is 45 threes taken. 45 threes taken is the most the Phoenix Suns have ever taken in a game. It also would have been the most that anyone took when he coached the Pelicans. I think their average was way, way, way lower than that. And it was a different NBA. It's, you know, more threes, more threes every year. But even Alvin Gentry, just when I was looking up the New Orleans Pelicans, even Alvin Gentry's led teams have only shot more than 45 threes once. That's a lot of threes. It's not often that a team will shoot 45 threes. Uh, But the other thing is running in transition. They appear to be running. It doesn't appear to be a stagnant offense. It doesn't appear to be a slow-moving offense. There's been no effort to put two traditional big men on the floor together at one time. You know, we've talked a little bit about that so far. We haven't seen, you know, Baines and and Aiton only played one game together, but they didn't share the court together a single time. Um, The closest you can say to two centers sort sort of sharing the court together, I guess, is Baines and Kaminsky, but Kaminsky's shot and sort of the way he plays in general has made it seem like he's more of a four in those lineups. He's not much, you know, it could be argued that he'd be better used, better utilized as a center. But uh, do you believe that Monty Williams has changed? I do. From what we've seen. From what we've seen so far, I do. You, You know what's so cool about last night, too, is if you look at the point guards, the Suns were pushing the pace. I love that you brought that up. But then you look at the point guards that they were playing without Ricky Rubio on the roster and and think about the background where those guys came from. Ty Jerome came from by far the slowest D1 college program in the NCAA at Virginia. That's what he was the the point guard for, is the slowest, most mechanical moving offense. Javon Carter was the starting point guard last night. He came from the Grizzlies, who uh, ranked dead last in pace. And then you have Tyler Johnson as another guy who's mostly playing shooting guard last night, but, you know, can play a little bit of point guard as well. Doesn't traditionally fit the mold of a pure point guard who pushes the pace. And yet that's what they were working with. And they scored 134 points and they had 29 assists to 18 turnovers. That's, to me, an indication that that's all from Monty. It's not those guys like 
natural background to play like that. They played like that even with Rubio off the court. I think that's all coming from the coaching. And honestly, at this point, I know it's only been a few preseason games, but I'm willing to buy in and say that Monty is serious about a lot of the stuff that he's been saying. Yeah, and I think Willie Green from the Warriors is an interesting uh, coach in this scenario too because I I thought a lot of these sort of offensive uh, ideals that were coming out of that game specifically, and part of it is because they made so many three pointers, of course. But it was a little Warriors asking what they were running and 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 when they were running specifically running. Uh, that felt a lot like that, and I think Monty said it before. Uh, we have plays in the half court. They're going to run plays in the half court. But if the ball is turned over, or if you have an opportunity to run, then freedom reigns, right? And you can kind of see that. Uh, when they catch the ball off of a miss and they have an opportunity to run, they're running it down the court. And uh, the, what I saw a lot of is just a quick pick, just a quick pick and roll, and then trying to get into the paint as quickly as possible. Uh, very Steve Nash-esque. I've, of course, we've seen this before. And and then trying to make a quick decision around that. And if not, backing it up and trying to run a play. And I think that's a smart thing to do. And of course, if there's a live ball turnover, we've seen it with Kelly Oubre a few times. Kelly Oubre just grabs it and goes. He goes directly to the basket and he's going to try and score. And I think that's smart. It's what's going to get him to the line. But it also it, it creates sort of an unpredictability on offense, which I think is really vital. It's really important. It's It's what makes basketball sort of fun to watch as well. And I think more than anything else, Coming out of last night, that was the most fun I've had watching the Suns in a long time, right? Uh, yeah, probably. I, I mean, I don't even remember. Did, did we win games at the end of last season? Like, I, I don't remember our record. It's been so long since we've recorded in March and April, if there were any standout games from those months, but not from my memory right now. So I would basically say this is the most fun I've had watching the Suns in a while. Yeah. Yeah, and I think so. And, I, you know, I do believe, you know, what I said previously is Monty Williams is saying that he's changed and I've said it before. He just has to prove it because the changes that he's talking about making are the changes that we wanted him to make, which is kind of nice, right? They're they're what we wanted. Yes. It's that Uh, sweet validation. (laughs) Monty is listening to me and making these decisions because of what I said. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's honestly, it's all the changes that basketball has made since he was last a head Mm -hmm. coach and he was around to see it. You know, it's not like he was, you know, he was at some of the more advanced teams uh, with Oklahoma city and with the Philadelphia 76ers. So he's been around to see it. And I think so far it seems to be the case. Uh, And, and, you know, we'll just have to see if that continues uh, going forward. Uh, Let's move on. Unless you have anything else to say on that, let's move on to the next overreaction. Yeah, let's move on. All right. The Phoenix Suns drafted Steve Nash and Clay Thompson uh. in the same <laughs> draft. <laughs> Woo, okay. Uh, I hope so. I know. I well, so. here's the thing. It's actually, it is kind of a fun thing, right, to, everyone kind of believed in Ty Jerome. We've talked to that, about that before. Ty Jerome is one of those guys that uh, anyone who's been around him, anyone that watched a lot of that Virginia team, they understand Ty Jerome, but the amount of flack that this team caught for that Cam Johnson pick, even this one game just felt so good to watch. And, it, and it's not just, you know, to sort of feel good as a Suns fan, but it's also for him and his sake because, you know, he sees it too. He understands it. And uh, they both looked very good. And, and Ty Jerome, to me, has looked good in every game so far. Cam, Cam Johnson just hasn't shot much. I mean, that's honestly, uh, until this game, that was my biggest criticism of Cameron Johnson. I think that he is a little outmatched defensively. 
And if he's on the court, he has to shoot. And I actually think him coming off the bench benefited him in this game. Uh, what do you think of our two rookies so far? Well, Ty's been great uh, throughout three games, I think. And and Cam was just really good last night. He's shot it. I, I Well, I, I don't have the box scores in front of me, so <laughs> I can't say this with like any certainty. I, I felt like he was shooting in the first two games uh, without any hesitation. He just didn't get many opportunities, and maybe I'd have to go back and, and rewatch those games to see why that was. But it felt like his teammates were really looking for him in this game, especially he's the type of guy where once he has the hot hand, you're going to look for him. Like yeah. there was this play, and I don't remember if it was the third or the fourth quarter anymore, but Ty Jerome was looking for him and had him catch it right off a handoff. Yeah. Uh, and, and he immediately went up for it. And at that point, that was his last three of the game. He was at like 16 points. Uh, and then he attacked again and shot along too a couple possessions later and got up to 18. But like once he gets hot, you have to look for him. But with shooters, a lot of the time, you know, it, it is kind of easy, especially for a guy like Cam Johnson to kind of get stuck there in the corner. And, you know, maybe you don't do anything for on offense, at least for a stretch of four to six minutes at a time. And I think that especially uh, it's easy for that to happen when you're playing with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton uh, and Rubio and, and Ubre, which is what he was doing yes. those first couple games. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That was the point that I wanted to make. It's just really hard for him to find shots when he's with that lineup. They're clearly trying to run things through, specifically Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. And I understand that. And I think over time, if they played together, they would start realizing how how great of a threat it is to have a guy on the perimeter that's essentially an automatic slingshot directly into the basket. <laughs> and it's nice to have a guy like Cameron Johnson doing that. But, you know, to play with that lineup, do you expect him to get 10, 12 shots a game? No, it's just no. probably not going to happen. But when he comes off the bench and uh, they're creating turnovers, especially, he, he can really run out on those turnovers and he can get to that corner. He can get to that wing and he can shoot from anywhere. We saw him literally shoot from anywhere. He had the top of the key, he had the wing and he had the corners down. It's just... He's capable of getting more shots. Basically, if he comes off the bench, it's possible for him to be the main guy shooting off the bench, the guy who takes the most shots off the bench. And I think he sh- probably should be. That's what he's there for. It's it, you know. And I do wonder, actually, what you thought of both of them defensively, because I think for both of them, they're not very strong. They're, neither of them are overly athletic. We've talked about the athletic deficiencies on this team in general, uh, but from what I can tell, and I haven't focused too much on it, both of them seem to be in the right place at the right time relatively consistently. I think it's going to be a little easier for Cam Johnson to get beat off the dribble just going to the rim because of the type of athletes that are at the wing in the NBA. Ty Jerome seems to be holding his own so far, but he's not very athletic either, so we'll see. how He had two blocks in the last game, which is fascinating. <laughs> a guy who gets no blocks at yeah, all. No, that's what do funny. you think of their defense? I, I haven't noticed any obvious defensive breakdowns that doesn't mean they're always in the right place at the right time again i'd have to go back and and really focus on where these guys are each possession i think the tough thing for ty uh in particular is that you look at a guy like javon carter javon carter hasn't been chump change in the preseason right uh and defensively he's been really good and he's not the javon carter of last year that shot 30 percent from the field for the grizzlies like he's he's not the same playmaker that Ty is. Obviously, there's a give and take there when you swap out one for the other. Uh, but those two are very much locked in a battle for backup point guard right now. And I wouldn't say that Ty's running away with it at all. Uh, so that's what we have to consider. Ty's been solid, but but Javon Carter is on another level. And I had this conversation with the guys from the Seven Seconds or Less podcast uh, just the other day. Like, who's the second best defender on this team uh, after Mikhail Bridges? 
Mm. is like there's probably an argument for Javon Carter, frankly, with the way he's mm-hmm. been playing in preseason. Maybe mm-hmm. Kelly Oubre, when he's locked in, looks really good. Aaron Baines is uh, solid, but I wouldn't call him elite necessarily defensively. So I think we have to consider that when when talking about Ty. Uh, but definitely he hasn't done anything bad, and, and that's that's a good start. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And the, the blocks thing was fascinating just because of how I have a feeling a two-block game for Ty Jerome is going to be very rare. Uh, so we saw a bit of a unicorn uh, last night. Is there a place for how – do, how did both of those guys find minutes? Because I do, I do find it interesting, right? They had options to start this game. They could have started with Tyler Johnson at point guard. They could have started with Ty Jerome at point guard. But what did they do? They started with Javon Carter at point guard. And then Javon Carter was basically blanketed on Damian Lillard 94 feet. Lillard 94 feet. So he was following him basically up and down the court. And then they were switching on screens. I noticed they were switching on screens with uh, Damian Lillard. They were trying to not switch on screens with CJ because Mikhail Bridges was on CJ. Uh, Damian Lillard, of course, can shoot from 40 feet away. So you kind of have to switch if you want to keep um, on him the whole time. But the question is, do these guys play, both of them play regularly? Do they situationally put Javon Carter in when they need a point guard that's defensively uh, able to cover guys? Uh, and then just sit Ty Jerome like I'm really wondering situationally is tough in the NBA because I yeah. think a lot of players really benefit from routine yeah, so I don't what, like I, it. what 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 <laughs> well what I would say Mike is you should like it because this is the privilege of having a decent respectable basketball team right. there shouldn't only be eight or nine players on your roster that you're comfortable with touching the court and then the rest is just like once they come out there you're terrified that's not how it works with right. teams that can actually win games and so the advantage the suns have now is if they go in uh, and you know knock on wood here because there's still another preseason game left but if they go into the regular season at full strength with everyone and they want to play a 10-man rotation, which is what Monty has said in the past. There are going to be guys 11, 12, 13 who are capable basketball players but aren't going to get minutes. And we should be fine with that. And one of those guys is going to be one of Javon Carter or Ty Jerome probably. Until someone gets injured, I think that's just how it's going to shake out. It's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're not worried too much from a chemistry standpoint. But most good teams, and we're not even a good team. We're just an okay one now maybe. But most good teams operate this way, and it's not... I think it's just scary to Suns fans because this is how long it's been since the Suns have had a respectable team. And that's fair. And I think I've talked about it a lot before using Kawhi Leonard as the example, the the prime example of how to develop a rookie. Uh, Kawhi Leonard came onto a good team and he wasn't just immediately granted all the minutes it takes to just make all the mistakes. Like I think a lot of times the Suns were kind of operating on this idea that rookies had like this finite number of mistakes that they were going to make. So they just get them out in the court and let them make all those mistakes right away. And then all of a sudden that's going to make them better uh, basketball players in the future. And that, that wasn't the case. And you really do to, to properly develop players. You really do have to make them earn their place on the court. So I do see that happening. It's just what I, what I'm worried about more than anything else is I, I think that there's a strong possibility that Monty Williams is, is just, fully in love with the way that Javon Carter plays right now. And that's fair because it's nice to have a dog on the court. And, you know, I've always loved guys like that. But Ty Jerome just looks, he already looks like a guy that could be a future starting point guard in the NBA. Maybe not in the next year, maybe not in the next two years, but you can just kind of see it. He makes all the right decisions. He can shoot. Uh, He shoots on defenders. I, I thought this was kind of interesting. 
a couple of the jump shots that he's made have just completely blown me away. Uh, his ability to get that shot up over a defender for a guy who's not athletic and gets almost no lift <laughs> on his jump shot, and that's been going in. So I guess I guess more than anything else, it, it worries me that we're not going to spend that time on uh, Ty Jerome. But uh, to your point, I think you're right. That's probably the best developmental plan for both of them. Yeah, I I, th- I think so. I stand I stand by everything I said earlier. Like I I hear what you're saying, and I think Ty's been very crafty with his floaters, and it, it's basically been what I expected. Um, but it's looked really good from like inside, you know, maybe 15 feet. Uh, he's had some really impressive finishes, like you said, for a guy who's not athletic. Uh, but it's just going to be look. There's going to be an injury eventually. There's going to be opportunities for everyone. As much as it sucks, it's a long season. It's a long grind, and guys will get worn down. Uh, so I have full faith that Monty will find minutes for Ty Jerome and Cam Johnson, and I'm happy with the way they played so far in preseason. I'm just not convinced that it's going to come on night one. When you're selling online, getting your orders out can be a real pain. Time-consuming, expensive, so many carriers to choose from. How do you know you're making the best choice? That's why you need ShipStation.com. It's the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. ShipStation helps you get orders out quickly, save money on shipping costs, and keep your customers happy. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, or your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface, making them very easy to manage from any device, even your phone. ShipStation works with all of the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, UPS, and Amazon Fulfillment, so you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice for online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. And right now, listeners of this podcast can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use the offer code BLUE, B-L-U-E. There's absolutely no risk, and you can start your free trial without even entering your credit card info. Just visit ShipStation.com and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in BLUE. That's ShipStation.com, offer code BLUE. ShipStation, make ship happen. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off, blame ourselves, or say things like, I lost my mojo, or avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about it, with a real doctor who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED from the comfort and privacy of your own home. The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction can be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash BlueWire for a free visit to get started. GetRoman.com slash BlueWire. All right, the next preseason overreaction. James Jones is a misunderstood genius. Oh. <laughs> I thought this one would uh, dovetail nicely with the previous one talking about 
drafting Ty Jerome and Cam Johnson, those guys have one good game in the preseason, and everyone's kind of <laughs> <laughs> everyone's kind of like James Jones is a genius. You know, James you know who Jones else had a good genius. game in the preseason the other day? Yeah. Did you, yeah. see, did you see Dragon Bender with... Yeah, 17 points. 17 points, 6 rebounds, yeah. 3 blocks. Not bad. He mm-hmm. looks pretty good in Milwaukee's system. Yeah, and Draymond Green also really, really likes Marquise Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I didn't, I didn't think of that one. Yeah, and you know what? Preseason is preseason. That's a fact. But I do think there is more to learn from preseason than maybe I personally have in the past. I've written off a lot of previous preseasons that were maybe a little more predictive than... I thought they would be, but I also think there's an element of teams are trying things that they are not going to do in the regular season, or maybe they're finding out in the preseason that it's not working, and they're going to try something different in the future. Like, for example, uh, Hassan Whiteside, do you think he's going to end the season with the Portland Trailblazers? That does not make any sense to me at all. Yeah, I I really don't know how that's going to work out. Portland fans seem pretty optimistic about it. Of course. Um, and he's he's just basically the same thing he's always been. I mean, with Portland, it's a tough situation in the first place because you got to consider all the cap constraints, and that's kind of why you end up in a situation where the best you can get is a guy like Hassan Whiteside at your center position while Nurkic is out in the first place. Um, I don't know. We, we don't have to get too deep into that, but he yeah. wasn't he wasn't great last night. He wasn't great, and if they really called every moving screen that he was committing, I think he would have been out halfway through that game. And, you know, it's just kind of, he's not, I I just don't see him as a future piece for that team. And Nurkic, uh, for, you know, how difficult it is to to replace what Nurkic was doing, he was very good. He was really good on that team. Essentially, almost an all-star level level center for that team. And and, and trying to replace that, it's going to be difficult. And um, Hassan, it's just, Hassan Whiteside is not it. I have a a feeling he's not going to be on that team at the end of the year. But, But the point is, of all of that, is to say that it's still too early to judge James Jones and I think that there is a little bit of vindication that he can feel right now but it's fleeting he probably felt that vindication when Ricky Rubio won that MVP as well and when (laughs) Spain won uh, the World Cup as well but that's fleeting as well all that matters all that matters going forward is whether or not this team wins in the regular season they have to win games in the regular season it's nice if Ty Jerome is good in the regular season as well. It's nice if Cam Cam Johnson proves that he should be a player that was drafted at 11th. But the fact is, with both of those guys, uh, specifically on those decisions that James Jones made, they're older rookies. They should be more capable of performing right now. They really should be. And to to expect them to not be good would be a bad thing, right? We talked about it as one of our biggest questions in our season preview. Can these guys perform at a higher level than a regular rookie? Because that's what they're sort of expected to do when you pick them because they're already good. So I don't think there's any way that we could judge James Jones so far. I think that it's probably going to be a week-to-week thing that we're going to talk about. How good is he doing? Of course it is. Um, But, you know, I feel pretty good about it right now, I guess. Yeah, whether that's fair or not, we're going to be talking about it all season long uh and and yeah the moves he made we've mentioned it before the moves he made this summer were intended to raise the floor of this team that's a that's short-term thinking it's not short-sighted thinking but it's short-term thinking uh we don't know what sort of ceiling any of these players have so obviously you know when when trying to envision the suns becoming a team that gets past the second round of the playoffs that is really a 60 win contender 
Uh, I have no idea how James Jones is doing on that end, guys. Like, yeah. it's preseason. We just don't right. know. Right. But while we're on this one, can we talk? There's two guys I do want to talk about because I don't have any overreactions directly related to them. Uh, Dario Saric and Frank Kaminsky. What did you think of both of those guys? And you can talk about either one of them if you want, and I can give my opinions on them as well. I thought Dario took a little bit of time to get it going, and he looks he looked a lot better in this game. Frank Frank Kaminsky kind of blew me away last They're night. They're fucking <laughs> awesome. They, they were both really good. Awesome. They were both really good, and I, I didn't expect it out of Frank at all. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of things. Like, so here's what I thought they were coming in. I thought mm-hmm. we were getting a couple of players who could shoot and pass, right? But but there's more to it than that. Like getting to watch them more, really watching the nuance is what I would encourage you guys as listeners to do as well because yeah. you can see a lot of nuance in their game. I'll start with Frank. Frank isn't just catching and shooting. He's catching, he's driving, he's finding driving lanes and he's finding open passing lanes off of that driving and making assists. And they're not easy assists. His eight assists last night were not easy. He was creating the offense for himself off of the catch, driving inside, which is hard for a guy of his size. Like I was shocked, frankly, at what he was able to do. And then on top of that, he was able to hit his shots. That's huge. With Dario, the thing about Dario is that Dario provides so much gravity uh to this team's offense and when when people think about gravity like often we get kind of locked into this conversation all we're all we're able to focus on is the raw three-point percentage right so we think about this guy's a 40 percent three-point shooter versus this guy who's a 36 percent three-point shooter therefore i'd rather have player a than player b because he shoots better but the truth is there's more to getting the defense to respect your shot than just that there's in fact there's like two other factors in there i'd say the first factor is distance and range Uh, some guys just have more range than others, you know, not everyone in the NBA can have Steph Curry or Damian Lillard range. That's the obvious way to get more gravity because then the defense is going to play up closer on you. It's going to open up more space for everyone around you on your team. I don't really think the Suns have anyone like that. So I'm going to move on to the other nuance there, which is, uh, just like fluidity of movement. And the thing that impresses me about Dario so much compared to literally every other stretch four they've had. Over the past decade, whether it's Channing Fry, Mirza Toledovic, Ryan Anderson, Dragon Bender, Marquise Chris, you name it, Ugh. is that he has, he is a Let's fluid. not name it. Let's not he's, name it again. He's fluid, though, and that's important. Aaron yeah. Baines can't do that either right, on this right. team. DeAndre Ayton can't do that. Frank Kaminsky can't do that. Not many six foot ten guys in the entire NBA can do that. Dario can move. He can catch. You had actions last night where you had Javon, uh, Javon Carter in one of the opening plays of the game. You had Javon Carter set a pin-down screen for yeah. Dario to run off of that screen, that pin-down, yeah. catch it at the top of the key, and he elected not to take that shot, actually. It was and a bad he drove pass. In. It was a bad pass. He drove in, and he actually lost the ball. He turned it over. But if he just takes that shot, and I'm not mad about him driving either because I like the fact that he is not like Dragon Bender, and he's actually not afraid of contact and will drive inside because he doesn't usually turn it over like that. But the fact that he is capable of running to a spot like that as a 6'10 player into what is often a contested position where he is catching the ball off of movement and immediately rise up for a shot is a real privilege to have in a 6'10 player for the Suns. And, and that's what makes him so distinct as a player, and that's what gives him gravity. It's not just about being a good shooter in a vacuum. Aaron Baines is a solid shooter in a vacuum. He doesn't have the same sort of gravity that Dario Saric does yeah. because yeah. Saric can run to spots. He can run off of screens. It opens up so many options for your offense, and you guys should just like pay attention to that because I think it's going to be huge. 
Well, I'm glad actually you brought up the Aaron Baines and Dario Saric comparison there because Baines takes a good like three seconds to put up a three point shot. It's like it, it looks like the ball weighs like thirty pounds when Aaron Baines <laughs> is shooting it, and it, obviously it's a real it's actually a really soft touch for his shot. It, it it really hits the net nicely when he makes it, and it's a nice shot. But when it comes to gravity and what you're talking about. Being able to shoot the shot very quickly, it's also something that matters. And uh, something about Dario that I actually think he's he's been pump faking and driving a lot. Actually, both Frank Kaminsky and, and Dario Saric have been pump faking and driving. And that's nice to get into the teeth of the defense because both of those guys, I mean, Frank Kaminsky had eight assists. That's completely insane. I don't think, I don't know that that's going to happen ever again. And if it does, <laughs> Jesus, that's like impressive. That's <laughs> yeah. really impressive for his uh, size and, and the position that he was playing. But, like, I actually think that Dario needs to shoot it more when he catches it because it's very difficult. How fast he shoots and how tall he is, it's pretty difficult to defend that without fouling him. And I think that he needs to let it fly a little bit more. And maybe that takes away from his playmaking. But what I didn't like, and and hopefully they got rid of this entirely, unless it works out better uh, going forward, is in the first two plays of the previous games, the, the two games that were um, Minnesota and Sacramento, they posted him up, and I understand yeah. posting up Dario every once in a while, and they posted him up as a playmaker. He didn't try to attack. They had guys running off of screens. They had some split cuts. They had Basically, he was looking for guys cutting or jumping out to the three-point line for a shot. I don't think it worked a single time. And I, and and they didn't run it to start this game, uh, You know, to, to Monty's credit. But that's not what, to me, that's not what he's good at. I like him more facing up from the three-point line if he can. He has that pump fake. He can catch it. He can drive. uh, And then he can create based on that. He's a little clumsy. (laughs) And Frank Kaminsky is a little clumsy as well. They're both. They both are. But I, I, I do like... What I like about both of them from that point is it's almost like they're using that against a defender because what they anticipate that they're capable of doing is less than they are actually capable of doing, especially Frank Kaminsky. I think Frank Kaminsky just kind of, and Richie Randall brought this up when we had him on the podcast a few months ago when Frank Kaminsky signed. Richie Randall is the host of the BuzzBeat podcast. He covers uh, Charlotte. So, uh, of course, he saw Frank Kaminsky play a lot, and he talked about how Frank unexpectedly catches defenders off guard by being able to sort of rumble and bumble all the way to the rim. <laughs> is that is that the phrasing he used? <laughs> something like that. Clyde Fraser-esque? <laughs> he did say something like that. And I, and I think he's right, I guess, is my point. Because uh, you just don't expect a guy who moves that awkwardly uh, to be able to get around guys and... Uh, to his credit, to be able to find guys once he's there or attack the rim. He didn't have a lot of scoring at the rim last night, but he did have the, that three-point shot was going for him. It was going for everyone, I guess. It was kind of one of those nights uh, in the NBA where just shots were going in. But I've been really impressed with both of those guys. And they even <laughs> they even ran a pick and pop together. Yes, where, they did. They <laughs> did. Frank Kaminsky uh, went around. A Dar- so Dario Sarge got the rebound. Uh, for those of you who remember this, just picture it. If you didn't see it, find this play. It's really fun. I think the Suns video breakdown guy tweeted it. Uh, Dario Sarge grabs a rebound, takes it down the court on his own, passes it to Frank Kaminsky at the left wing, and then immediately sets the screen. Frank Kaminsky goes around the screen, takes two steps into the three-point line, and then passes it out to a popping 
Dario Saric, who immediately makes the three. And I was just like, is this, is this really, is this really happening right now? Do we really have these two awkward, tall white guys <laughs> running a pick and pop without any other actions? The other guys were just spreading the floor around the three point line. And, and Frank Kaminsky was, he was a point guard for that possession for whatever reason. And they're capable of doing that. Dario Saric was also, in the game with Aiton, he had a few uh, pick and rolls with Aiton, which I, I, I really like that because uh, there's just a lot of advantages to having three guards being able to either shoot the three or cut to the basket around a pick and roll. So if that's something that they can do regularly, that's a huge weapon. But overall, I guess both of us are really impressed with both of both of those guys so far, right? <laughs> Yeah, how can you not be? I mean, the one weakness that you mentioned um, about Dario posting up is is one hundred percent valid. That's been bad uh, yeah. so far, but uh, but yeah, other than that, they've they've really been great. I'm glad you brought them up, even though they weren't in your other overreactions because we needed to talk about them. They've been yeah. arguably two of the, two of the best. Uh, brightest suns so far. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know it is kind of funny that both of them, like you, you tweeted out a Frank Kaminsky step back three, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what? And then Dario Saric as well has had some uh, pump fakes, uh, sort of a lean back drive. You know, you know the move where you pump fake, lean back a little bit, and then and then step forward around the defender. He's had a few of those where he pump fakes and then steps into a a pull-up mid-range shot, which if he can hit that, if that's really a weapon, and I don't know enough about him to know if it is or if it has been in the past, and it's possible that it is now, that's pretty hard to defend. Now, not that I want a lot of mid-range off-the-dribble shots to be taken by a 6'10 guy, but, I mean, Dirk Nowitzki is a guy who is capable of doing that, so it can be a weapon if it's something that you can hit on a, on a regular basis. So we'll see if those guys can continue to create off the dribble like that. And of course, they're not going to be playing against Hassan Whiteside every game, so maybe they can't take advantage of, <laughs> of every interior defender uh, the way they were capable of uh, with Hassan Whiteside, but I've been very impressed by both of those. So more than anything else with James Jones, maybe he is a misunderstood genius, but maybe he isn't. It's just way, way, way too early to say. I am happy that some of those moves so far are working out. But like we talked about previously, we expected them to get better. And that's all we've seen so far. Um, here's an interesting one. We're going to get into the more complicated ones uh, right now. Uh, here's one that I saw. This team moves the ball better without Aiton and Booker on the floor. Haha. Yeah, I would have expected a- someone to say that. That was an overreaction I saw. I even I even saw some people saying maybe Booker should come off the bench <laughs> and uh, and and play with wow. the bench. Okay. Yeah, well that's yeah. just dumb. But well, I'll let you start Sam. What well, do you Well, no. Think? I mean, look, this is this is just one of those I don't think it's a sun specific thing. I think this is a classic train of thought for NBA fans is the Ewing effect. That's what it is. I was, I was thinking the phrase for it. You mm. take away the star player and you try to explain the phenomenon of the rest of the team doing better without their star player, mm-hmm. right? And it's this, mm-hmm. this false equivalence kind of of everyone comes together and all these scrappy guys just play together and, and you build this argument against the star player as taking away opportunities from the rest of the team and not buying into necessarily what the team's strategy is and not moving the ball well. It's not just about Devin Booker, which is what we're battling right now, evidently. And I didn't really know that this was an opinion that people had, frankly, but it's something that I think happens to a lot of superstars. Uh, Mostly, I think what we saw that stood out last night was effort. And that's the only thing you can really hold against Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, particularly from that second game against the Kings. 
They're clearly very, very talented players. But if you look at last night's game against the Blazers, there wasn't a single player that you could point to and say that player looks lethargic. Whereas if we go back to the Kings game, there were a couple players where, especially DeAndre Ayton, frankly, it was like, I can't tell if he gives a shit right now. He's not giving 100% effort. And that's the only thing. If they do not do that as the leaders of this team, they're going to be challenged by the coaching staff. They're going to be challenged by the fans. Uh, But... The team doesn't move the ball better on paper with Devin Booker uh, off the floor. That just doesn't make any sense. He's too good of a playmaker for that. And his offense and, and his ability to create for himself off the dribble just opens up so much more for you. Yeah, I think there actually is some truth to that, um, that the ball moves a little better without them on the floor. But that's because Devin Booker can create for himself better than almost any player in the NBA. So he mm-hmm. doesn't need to pass to create an, a, a great offense or a good look or a high points per possession look. He can just beat his man, get to the rim, get fouled, or score. And yeah, maybe that doesn't take a pass or two or three, um, but it's still good offense. But I do wonder if there's a way for it to sort of revolve around uh, Devin Booker with the ball still being whipped around. I think that's the ultimate goal for this team, where the ball's moving a lot and Devin Booker's still a- able to get his looks. Um, maybe a little more off the catch and shoot. That's why his threes looked pretty good, I think, so far uh, in the preseason. And I think this game, and I do I do wonder, right, the, the decision to sit all three of those guys, I do wonder what motivated that decision. They said it was rest. And okay, f- fair, rest. Let them rest. But do they really need to rest at this point? They've played two games and they look relatively healthy. Was there a point to it beyond that? Were they trying to demonstrate something? Were they trying to illustrate the importance of moving the ball to these guys? We'll never know, probably, because even if it was, maybe they didn't even tell them that. But I think that there is some truth to that. And on the Aiton point, here's something that that is kind of bothering me sometimes. Is right is a post-up post-up offense the best style of offense in the NBA in general? The post-up Post-up generates sometimes the least amount of points per possession for any type of offense. And there was basically no post-ups in this game other than the occasional post-up with Dario Saric and I'm sorry, uh, Baines very close to the rim where it was an easy just sort of turn around and and put it up. And Aiton's a very effective post-up player, so it's a little different. He's very efficient and he's capable of turning those into high-quality offensive possessions. The the main thing is, I really want them to find a way to fit Aiton, Booker, and Rubio back into this. Rubio's different, right? Rubio, we don't really know. that This take was more about Aiton, Booker. Find a way to fit them back in, but still have the ball moving the way it was with these bench guys, because it looks really good, and I actually do think there's some truth to that. Yeah, it's... It's going to be tough. I know. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> to, to move. No, I know, I know that sounds stupid. I'm just kind of processing my, my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, it's because how do you achieve last night with Devin Booker and DeAndre Aiden yeah. on the floor unless you're going to play Devin Booker like Cam Johnson and DeAndre Ayton like Frank Kaminsky well, like, well, well, or well. Aaron Baines? Like, like, what are we reducing? You don't want to reduce their roles too much well, because you're just not taking advantage of what they're capable well, of. Well, say you play Devin Booker like Kelly Oubre. Uh, right, okay, right? sure. You, you know, Kelly Oubre was really attacking. He was really finding the seams in the defense and he was getting into the teeth of the defense. I mean, he had, what, 18 points in 19 minutes? That's Devin Booker-esque, you know? And, and Yeah, but you know, you, know, you know what it is, though? It's like Kelly, a lot of those plays who would be like, 
okay, Kelly, run to the corner. We're, uh, except for the plays that I was mentioning where Kelly really initiates it off of a rebound. If they're running a set play, Kelly starts in the corner on the wing. Yeah. He comes off a dribble handoff. Yeah. Like he comes back yeah. towards the perimeter, takes the dribble handoff from whoever the big is, and then attack. Yeah. Devin's initiating that play. Like that's the difference. And you don't don't you want him doing that well, though? Yes. Like why wouldn't you want I'm him? I'm actually in that glad position? I'm glad you said that because weirdly Devin Booker's uh offensive on synergy I looked it up Devin Booker's offensive uh, stats on dribble handoffs is is the worst play type for him as far you know he's even better at posting up he's better basically at everything else. Dribble handoffs for whatever reason is not the best for Devin Booker so he hasn't really found a groove there and i don't i guess i don't mean specifically using him the exact same way i i do mean essentially the uh opportunities that the shots um is finding an equal balance similar to what kelly Oubre had on the floor um i'm not like this is not a, a huge concern for me it's just i think that for monty and for the rest of the coaches that's probably their goal as well they want to see the ball moving as much as possible with those guys uh, right. on the floor once they're back. So uh, we'll see if it does. I think we have a lot of time to talk about that. Only one more preseason game. And most of you are listening to this on Monday. So that preseason game is tonight. And then we have nine days until the season opener. Who knows what we're going <laughs> to talk about? Who knows about? what we're going to talk about <laughs> next week, Sam? Uh, I'm sure something weird will happen. Um, and we can talk about that. But let's move on. We're almost done here. Um, okay. I have two DeAndre Ayton ones. One of them's positive. One of them's negative. I'll, I'll just say them both, and we can give our thoughts on DeAndre Ayton so far. Can you say them at the same time? I don't think so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> DeAndre Ayton is going to lead the league in rebounding, and DeAndre Ayton is the worst defender on the Suns. <laughs> Those are the two takes <laughs> that I've seen um, with DeAndre Ayton boy. so far. He might be. Yeah, uh, he might be, right? He, I, no, that's it's, my it's answer Devin to Booker. both. It's, De- it's, it's Devin Booker, I think. <laughs> Here's right? the thing. Devin Booker's a worse defender than DeAndre Ayton, but but you feel it more least watching impactful, DeAndre yeah. Ayton. That's true. Yeah. Least impactful right, because, position to be a bad defender at. Because Devin can fuck up and sometimes someone's behind him to make it all <laughs> yeah, up. If, if Whereas whenever, whenever DeAndre screws up, it ends up in a layup, and, and that just compounds the effect of feeling like he's such a terrible defender when really he's not. Uh, but, w- but which one do you want to start with? I mean, we kind of just went straight into defense. I but. think the defense is the more interesting conversation. So let's go with that one. <laughs> well, what's what's your take on it? Well, okay. He looked, to me, I thought it was interesting that people watched. who. So he played two games, right? He played the Minnesota game and he played the Sacramento game. Um, and after the Minnesota game, I found myself thinking, wow, he was pretty bad at defense in that game. But it didn't matter because the offense looked so good and they ended up winning that game. I even had a moment and the next day where I said, are we ready to... I was about to tweet, are we ready to talk about DeAndre Ayton's defense yet? But this, <laughs> but I didn't want to piss people off on the internet, so I... You, you absolutely would have. You can't You can't be saying such things on the internet after, after a, win. a win. Yeah, I know. <laughs> come on. I know. Save it, save it for the loss and then come out with the rest of the haters. But I did find it interesting that people were saying, well, he looked a little better in defense in that game. I didn't see it. I, honestly, I didn't see it. And then in the Sacramento game, it was one of those games for DeAndre Ayton. And everyone listening to this, you know exactly what I mean when I say it was one of those games. And it's that it was exceptionally bad. And it was exceptionally bad in a way where the offense of the Sacramento Kings was focused entirely on attacking DeAndre Ayton because he looked lethargic and he looked like he was not capable of making decisions fast enough 
maybe in 0.5 seconds, for example, uh, <laughs> to, to actually play good defense. And, and it's just after both of those games, I found myself saying, how could this team possibly have an effective defense with DeAndre Ayton on the floor? And I tweeted that out and some people didn't like it. And I'm sorry, but it's just... It's, I didn't see that tweet. It's That's difficult for me to envision... Knocking shit over at my house. It's difficult for me to envision <laughs> a, a good defense with him on the floor this year, at least. Now, uh, I will say that I do think that it takes a lot of time for big men to become excellent defenders, but I do think there's some of it is instinctual where uh, you can be a good defender because your instincts are right. He doesn't have those instincts, not the way the NBA is played, at least. I think he's capable of some one-on-one defense. He has some of that perimeter defense, uh, and he's capable of doing sort of the perimeter thing. But on the pick and rolls, particularly, he tends to make the wrong decision most of the time. And I, I think it's uh, it's unfair to think that he would have drastically improved over the course of a summer. And I think that with DeAndre Ayton, where he is right now is about where I expected him to be. But where he will be at the end of the season, I think is going to be very telling as far as how to build this team and whether or not it can be built around Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton going forward. And can you have two massive defensive liabilities as two biggest stars in your team when one of them is a center, basically? So uh, I did think it was very bad, but I think it's unfair to 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 judge the rest of the season on that right away. And obviously we're not doing sure. that, but for sure. But yeah. I did think it was bad. I did think it was really bad. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I think if you're willing to accept that Aiton's biggest problem on defense is reaction time. You were talking about it, making quick decisions. Uh, it's not the type of thing that comes in a summer. I think rea- reaction time is probably one of the hardest things to work on. It's probably one of the most instinctual yeah. uh, attributes of any NBA player that is the hardest to improve in general. So I think it's going to take a while for DeAndre Ayton to get there because that is his biggest weakness is recognizing uh, various forms of pick and roll coverage and seeing things before they happen. I mean, that's just obviously what he struggles with that other centers are are just able to pick up on a little bit quicker. It's not that DeAndre isn't strong enough. It's not that he isn't fast enough. It's just that he's struggling with recognizing it quick enough. And I don't really know what Monty and, and the coaching staff have in store for him to improve that. I don't know if they're just going to make him play a 10,000 hours of whack-a-mole, yeah. if they're going to hook him up to a VR headset and, and have him like react to things, or, or if they're just going to put him in 10,000 pick-and-rolls and force him to make similar but slightly different decisions until he gets better at it. Uh, but I think it's going to be a process, and I think it's going to take time. And so I think it's going to be frustrating to uh, everyone who follows the Suns as closely as we do. Yeah. Uh, to keep hearing this right, conversation right. rehashed, but I think it's going to come. It's going to come up a million times this year. Well, I do think there is an element of. I, and shout out to David Nash, who I listened to you guys this morning uh, when you were on the Seven Seconds or Less podcast. He talked about simplifying it and just trying to to get DeAndre Ayton to do the essentially the same thing uh, on every pick and roll, which is just just protect the rim and just be a big body that you can shoot around. And essentially that gives up a pretty massive area on the floor where where players can score. And it's, it's that mid-range area and it's guards coming around a screen. I think that's where it's going to be really difficult for him. And I think there's a possibility he gets in foul trouble if he doesn't do that correctly. But I think with DeAndre Ayton, the best you can expect defensively from him right now 
is a pick your poison style of defense. It just kind of is what it is. You have to give something up and you have to simplify it in, in a way. The the problem the real truth of the matter is with offenses, the way they work in the NBA now, there's a way to beat all of that. <laughs> you can find ways to score on DeAndre Ayton with the smartest offenses uh, in the NBA. So it's going to be very difficult for him. And, and he's got a lot of improvement to do. And I think the, the coaching staff recognizes it. And I think watching how this team develops is going to be fascinating for that reason only. Because Ayton, what he's good at uh, is like he's already like really good at it. <laughs> you know, rebounding. We talked about it. He yeah. had 13 rebounds be- in like 18 minutes the other day. And, you know, it's cap- he's capable of being the best rebounder in the league. He's also a good spot up shooter in, in specific situations he's an excellent post player uh, he's above average passer for his position like offensively he's fine but where he struggles is one of the most important things the center needs to do so watching that development going forward we're gonna have a lot to talk about i think and and i just hope that we don't have to be super granular about it every week uh granular i should say but i think that i have a feeling that that's that's kind of what we're gonna do right it it, it is (laughs) because we have to come up with stuff to talk about every week and you guys online are going to keep talking about it one last thing about his defense david nash again who was talking about just simplifying things for him it almost makes me wonder if maybe the best route to take with ayton is to play more drop pick and roll coverage yeah because like you were talking about mid-range shots right there like that's the whole point of that right like have him drop back off the screen, Give it force the mid-range shot. Because if we're accepting that, when has DeAndre Ayton looked best on defense so far? David and I and Max were talking about it on that episode. Give him a goal and focus on that one goal. You are guarding LeBron James in this game. He did great. You are guarding Giannis Antetokounmpo in this game. He did great. If his goal is we're going to play drop coverage, uh, you're going to just protect the rim. You're going to, whoever is on the perimeter is going to help denying the three-point shot for you. You're going to give them the mid-range shot and that's going to be our scheme. Because if they beat us with the mid-range shot, that's okay. We'll take that shot. I think he might actually do a little bit better with that. Because, you know, up until this point, we've been saying he's really good with perimeter defense. But kind of forcing him to be out there and dancing with smaller players in space, that's when having a lack of reaction time, you really start to struggle with that. And things can really break down quickly. Whereas if you keep him close to the rim, even if he's not instinctively the best rim protector, if you give him that focus, if you're just going to protect the rim and you give them the mid-range shot, I think it might work out a little bit better for Aiden. I'm curious to see if they experiment with it a bit. Yeah, and you know what does that do? That actually, so that forces that forces guys to go around over the screen. Essentially, it forces guys to go over the screen a lot, or they can drop under the screen. But who's going to kill us in scenarios like that? Say they do go over the screen, they get they give them the mid range. Well, guys like Steph Curry, guys like Damian Lillard, Lou Williams, there's a lot of guys who just pull up from three, just take a step to the side. James Harden, they're going to kill us. And and those guys kill us no matter what. So it, right. it kind yeah. of is what it is. And then if we can force, that's sort of a playoff style defense, right? Force them into the mid-range and force them to beat us with the mid-range. That's, well, that, we, yeah, we make that's it sound like, easy. It's actually very difficult. No, it's very, very difficult. But that that's like the, like, how do you beat the Milwaukee Bucks? That's how you do it. You gotta you gotta deny Giannis at the rim somehow. You gotta try to force right. him to shoot. So you know, like, and and of course, I'm oversimplifying things and I'm making it sound too easy. If there were an easy solution, we wouldn't have right. ten thousand different forms of ways to to guard the pick and roll, right. and there would just be one that every coach would know. This is the way you do it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just situational. I just wonder if experimenting with it a little bit might um, provide some dividends for DeAndre Ayton's defense specifically. Yep. 
All right. We might have to change the name of this podcast to DeAndre Ayton's Defense Podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about that every week. Last one. Last one. An overreaction that maybe is a little less of an overreaction. Mikhail Bridges should start. This is an overreaction that I've heard uh, throughout from the, me from, <laughs> throughout uh, the internet and on even on this this morning when I listened to the seven seconds or less podcast, you guys talked a little <laughs> bit about that. Do I consider this an overreaction so far? Yeah, a little bit. Do I disagree? I don't really know yet. I actually think there is some benefits to having Kelly Oubre in the starting lineup. And then after what we saw from Dario Saric, it's easy to envision Dario Saric being very good in that starting lineup as well. What do you think? Should Mikhail Bridges start? Now, I've said it before. I will say quickly. I don't think, I think it's really difficult to find a scenario where Mikhail Bridges does not make the team better. And that is sort of the argument in favor of Mikhail Bridges starting. But do you think he should start? I I still think he should, yeah. Because I think he maximizes your defense and then you run out a bench unit. Uh, One guy we haven't even mentioned yet today, Tyler Johnson. Maybe we mentioned him, but we haven't really talked about Mm -hmm. him. Looked really good last night and had a... Has his release always been that quick? Like, he barely played for us last season, so I guess I didn't even realize. But his shooting release coupled with Kelly's ability to attack. Uh, I like that combination yeah. off the bench, quite frankly. So I, I think you can make it work, and I think Mikhail should start for the defense. Well, it's he, here's the thing. Kelly Oubre, I think, is getting shafted on his defense a little bit in this conversation. Kelly Oubre is a good defender as well. Yes, maybe he's not uh, Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges, I think, is more capable of guarding smaller players, but he kind of got cooked by CJ last night as well. N- not to Mikhail Bridges' fault. Uh, you know, he di- he was doing sort of as well as you can. I, I think that's the type of defender that CJ McCollum is particularly good at attacking uh, because he's just long and it's, and it's easy to get some space and he doesn't need much to score. Uh, but I think Kelly Uber is also a very good defender. And what I worry about, I guess, is... In that starting lineup, if we were to take Kelly Oubre out, he really is the only sort of traditionally athletic player in that starting oh. lineup. And you can say you yeah, can say DeAndre right. Ayton, right? You can say DeAndre Ayton. But we just had a long conversation talking about how he looks lethargic like one out of every three games. So okay. you know, it's just really yeah. it's just really hard for me to picture like, I think- do they need that? I think what you're trying to say, so DeAndre is definitely athletic, right? Yeah. But like Kelly can attack off the dribble is what you're saying. Uh-huh. And, and he, other, yep, off the rebound he's as well. A, he's like a slasher. And the yeah. Suns would not have that if you put Kelly on the bench. I see what you're saying, and I think that's fair. Counterpoint, did you see Mikhail Bridges with that one drive last <laughs> night? <laughs> yes, I tweeted it. Uh, <laughs> you did tweet it. It's I, I That was a rhetorical question because i knew you tweeted it 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 was the kevin durant move it was a rip through basically it's coming yeah it's coming i i think mikhail is gonna be so good this year um but i'm just really bullish on him so i don't know i uh, but i think you have a valid point and the other scenario that we've talked about much much less is you want to talk about defense okay Look, Kelly's not going to grab as many rebounds as Sharich, but you could start him at the four. And then you've got a guy with a 7-2 wingspan at the three. And Mikhail, you've got a guy with a 7-3 wingspan uh, at the four in Kelly. And that's maximum length, maximum playing the passing lanes, getting deflections, and then running out in transition. You could definitely do that as well. Um, I think that's a little bit closer to the style of basketball the Suns were going for last year with very mixed results. Yeah. 
Uh, obviously, Kelly's longer than TJ Warren, so you get more defense there, but you still wouldn't get the rebounding that, like, the Suns were so bad at rebounding when they tried to do that last year. So that would be my only reservation about that style. But you could try it. You could definitely try it. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, more than likely this scenario is going to be... Well, actually, I did find myself thinking a little bit last night about... So the starting lineup was Javon Carter, Mikhail Bridges at the two, Kelly Oubre, Dario Saric, and... Aaron Baines and it's you know I found myself thinking I know we just got Ricky Rubio but I did find myself thinking wow uh, Devin Booker would look nice as the primary playmaker in this lineup and uh, it would look really good and I have a feeling a lot of the end game scenarios maybe will include both Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre but I do think it's difficult to shift them up to that three and four position in game closing scenarios because of how many excellent guards there are in the NBA and how we will likely need one, if not both of those guys, to be defending smaller players going forward. And then you need some size for rebounding. You need other other options as far as that goes. But uh, I think the most likely scenario is we do end games with both of those guys on the court in some way or another, whether that be at three or four or two or three with Devin Booker at the one and Ricky Rubio sitting. But you know, I, I don't. I don't think I'm ready to say Mikhail Bridges should start. But I'm not overly against it. I do think it would be smart to start the season with Kelly Oubre in the starting lineup and see how it goes. But you know, it, it, I'm hard pressed to say that it's impossible that Mikhail Bridges doesn't end up in that starting lineup before the end of the year and maybe even sooner because it's just it's going to be difficult to keep him off the court. He's really good. He's really good. Yep. He's really good. <laughs> That's the other thing we're going to be talking about every week. Yeah. Mikhail Bridges is really good, and he's coming for that starting spot. <laughs> yeah, um, but is. but I do think Kelly's going to start with it, and I think Kelly will probably be fine. Yeah, and I think it'll be good. I, I think that Kelly Oubre has put a lot of work in this offseason as well, and if he can improve where he wants to improve, he's talked a lot about wanting to improve his defense. He's talked about improving that shot, and you've seen all the highlights of him attacking the rim. And I think a combination of Kelly Oubre and Devin Booker attacking the rim in that starting lineup, if we can get a significant portion of the starting lineups of the other teams in foul trouble early in the games, that would be pretty nice. You know, like both of those guys could average eight, nine free throws a game, and I wouldn't be surprised this year. Really? You you think Kelly could average like nine free throw attempts per game? I I do think that just because of the way he plays, and and I will say, I I did think this last year a little bit too. It all depends on his usage and and, and how much he he actually is handling the ball. But I think the way that he barrels into the defense has its disadvantages if they're not blowing that whistle. But I do think over time he's going to get better and better at getting fouled. And I think both of those guys can really rack up the free throws going forward. But, uh, you know, we'll see. But I I do think that's another advantage of having them both start. Yeah, no, I I can see that. Um, and, And that's a pretty easy adjustment to make, right? Like if you go with that starting lineup and you're not getting the calls... Uh, you can usually figure out which way the refs are going within the first six minutes of the game, and then you can kind of just throw in the towel on that one and, and change up your lineup. So actually, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> and I know I said we're about to finish, but say Mikhail Bridges is the first player off the bench. Who does he come in for? What what is that? What is that first change? Does he come in for Kelly Oubre? Does he come in for Ricky Rubio? What do you think the best option would be? Um, he comes in. Well, well, it's funny because I kind of envision it like Rubio. I don't think, based on what he's been doing the past couple seasons, he's been a guy who's playing like twenty-seven, twenty-eight minutes per game. He's not playing that much, 
Like he's not a 35 minute per game starting point guard. Right. So I kind of envisioned it as not a full platoon swap. You don't want to bring in the bench all at once, but kind of like Tyler Johnson and Mikhail Bridges, a package deal. Mm-hmm. So I kind of envisioned like Tyler Johnson comes in for Rubio, uh, Bridges comes in for Ubre. And then you can kind of decide like who you want to be the point guard there between Tyler Johnson and Devin Booker, because frankly, it could be either one. But something like that, I guess, is what I was thinking. I, th- I hope more than anything else. So the, the next game, for those of you listening to this on Monday, the game tonight is against the Denver Nuggets. And I hope more than anything else that they start the game with Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre, just so we can see it once before this preseason is over to see if, because I think that's an interesting team to do it against. They have size. And I think that's going to be hard for Kelly Oubre. And who knows if he even wants to play power forward. Not that it necessarily matters, but I think effort-wise it might matter. But I would really hope that we get to see something uh, something like that before the preseason is over. Any other thoughts or any other overreactions before we finish up, Sam? <laughs> None from me uh, that I can think of. We saw a little bit of Jalen LeCue, Sheck Diallo, uh, mm-hmm. even Jared Harper last night. Nothing... Yeah. No, no big overreactions there, though. No, those guys are—they are what they are. They are what they are, uh, and they're not going to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not going to play. That doesn't mean they're garbage, though. No, I don't think they are. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Jared Harper might not be in the NBA. I'll say, I'll say that. Well, okay, fine, but yeah, Jared Harper's a two-way anyway. Yeah, the Q's going to spend time in the G League. I think Diallo has a chance to like come in and make an impact. Uh, I, for as great as Frank Kaminsky has been. Uh, Frank Kaminsky is still going to bug the shit out of Suns fans. Like, I guarantee it. There's going to be a stretch where Frank Kaminsky is shooting 25% from three, has as many turnovers as he does assists, <laughs> and he's going to bug the shit out of you guys. Uh, and, and maybe Diallo becomes an appealing, like, rim-running athletic option at that point. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the starting lineup is uh, tonight for most of you who are listening on Monday. And uh, we'll see what we talk about next week, Sam. I have no idea what that's going to be. but No clue. If, if you guys have ideas, hit us up. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I look forward. Uh, the next episode will be our last episode until the season starts. And then Ever. We'll be able to, <laughs> then we'll be able to react <laughs> to actual NBA games. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I just saw everybody kind of playing together. Uh, the ball was on the string. You know, we're .5 is very crucial tonight. We're moving it and getting open shots. And I think that's why we were able to knock them down because we were getting open shots. I love it. Uh, you know, you can't hold the ball. You got to keep it moving, keep ball and body movements, uh, play with each other. You know, it doesn't matter who shoots it. You know, as long as we get the best shot for us, it's, you know, that's the main key. And I think that, you know, we'll, we'll continue to get better at that as long as, you know, we continue to just buy in and just, the season continues to go. But that's the best way we can play. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, 
Access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.